Hello, everyone, uh, and an, a special hello to any new listeners that are joining us uh, from from our friends over at the Double X Files podcast. Yeah, we, oh, oh, no, not yet. Oh, no. I don't want to introduce oh. my special guest just yet. Okay. So yeah, Tom is under the weather, so he's actually sitting this story out, but we got a Tom replacement. Uh, I don't know if, if anyone else knows this, this. We've got one of my favorite singer-songwriters on the show. I mean, I'm, I'm mildly obsessed with this guy. I, th- I think he's just amazing. Uh, Tom Waits is here. You know, I don't know much about the, this Double X Files podcast, but I'd like to thank any new any new listeners uh, coming coming over to the network uh, from the Double X Files, listening to this here podcast. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not Tom Waits. No, you are. You're oh, Tom, Tom Waits. Waits. You're yeah, singer songwriter right. Tom Waits. Uh, you were born in a basement cellar of a church. Your mother was a pile of bones. I've seen hell, and it's just a million nails. Yeah, your father was a train track. Oh, Rose. I'm so sorry. Where did I put my Purell? Oh, Christ. Yeah, as listeners may be able to tell, I'm Tom Lockney, and I don't normally sound like this, but I'm... But when you do, you only drink Dos Equis. I'm so fucking dedicated to this, to the craft of podcasting, that I'm here today... And I'm going to be talking in this low, soft voice. Oh, it's not soft. <laughs> it's like a fine, coarse sandpaper. Yeah, I apologize for my voice this week, but, you know, we we got we got deadlines to hit, you know? And we really are. We really are very excited uh, for the Double X Files to be on the network. I'm, I'm you... excited to be here, too. It's me, actual singer-songwriter Tom Waits. Oh. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I think Liam is... Piece of shit, though. And I wish he'd stop listening to my music. Um, but yeah, so we didn't want to miss an episode because we had new bummed. listeners. Yeah, we had new listeners. Yeah, but... we're very excited. I and love the got... Double X Files. Anyways. They, they just heard my hero insult me to my face and then leave our apartment. <laughs> that was fucking brutal. You got absolutely bodied, Liam. By Tom Waits, by who Tom, I love. By Thomas Waits. That being said, though, I, I tend to skip the blues songs because they are... Uh, not my jam. Hey Liam, what do we do on this podcast? Uh, oh, you don't want to go into great detail explaining it like you always do. Please, no. Uh, on on this on this podcast, and what makes it different from all other podcasts, yeah. we're recording this on Passover, so I had to say something. That's a it's a thing from the. T- you, don't worry about it. You are not Jewish. I am Jewish. It worked. Uh, on this podcast, we tell stories. I like movies and TV, so I usually tell a story about that. And I am called Liam Sr. And, and my name is Tom Lockney. Don't worry, you're, if you're a new listener, you're going to have no trouble distinguishing our voices from one another. Oh, yeah. Um, well, unless I... Oh, no. Oh, no, Tom. I caught, I caught whatever you had. Oh, Christ. Uh, yeah, and I like the culture of video games and the internet. And each week, we tell we each other... I, I, each week, we tell each other a Thank story. You. Thank you. We center it on a theme. Uh, today's theme is unions. Yes, it is! They sound like Spongebob when he needs water! Amazing. This is Uh, a fucking nightmare. Yeah, this is a nightmare. You're, you're going first to continue the nightmare. I am, and then when I stop, I'm gonna be, you're gonna hear absolute silence from my end of the podcast. Yeah, I'm gonna be doing most of the talking on the back half. And if you listen to the media minor, you know that I'm not good at that. (laughs) So, labor and game development, <laughs> most prominently in the AAA space, is unhealthy and exploitative. The broader cultural conversation surrounding phenomena like layoffs and equal pay or crunch has often been defined by 
a shrug and a nod. A, that's just the way it is. I'll just say it right now. The solution is unions. It's unions, everybody. It's unions. Your writing style is so, um, what's the word? Not conducive to how your voice is right now. Because you're very flowy and, like, use longer words, which is, um... Great for the podcast, but bad for your throat skin. I will suffer for <laughs> our art. So I just want to make make clear from the start that unions are good. Yeah, we like unions. Unions. Uh, I know. I know this is like a little one hundred and one, but just like, what good is it if we don't educate people who don't know? Uh, unions represent our is organized labor. It represents the the actual workers. Uh, and they are a seat at the table with employers, so they represent the needs and wants of workers. Uh, I'll tailor this to like the games industry, so like the the wage gap, which which happens between genders and sexualities, obviously races. Uh, yeah, yeah, like the games industry has a lot of problems. I mean, crunch is a huge problem. Crunch, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, is where people will work like 20-hour days. People have worked up to like 80 hours a week. Um, it is, it's ridiculous. And then compounding that, uh, it's it's a fairly common practice to overhire during crunch and then lay off a bunch of those workers at the end of a project and then not pay them bonuses that they should have been paid and in some cases not even pay them the salary that they should have been paid. It's a, it's a real fucking problem. And it's a real problem specifically in the games industry because it is a very young industry, even though it's been around now for, for a little while. It's not like Hollywood or, or somewhere else that's been around for yeah, like... Hollywood's pretty young too. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I actually think Hollywood and the games industry have a lot more in common. True, but they're actual like guilds and such in Hollywood. There are actual Okay, yeah, that is true. in Hollywood whereas like unionization in games is more or less unheard of. Which is why game dev is such a man, it's a rough fucking job. One of the first attempts at game dev unionization took place at Sierra Online in the late 80s, early 90s and was met with unfortunate roadblocks. Sierra Online was the only company of its kind in the area, meaning that if organization failed, a lot of people in already precarious positions could be out of a job, which is a real killer. Attempts at unionization came to a failed close, and the problems of game dev persisted. Almost like labor exploitation isn't solved when you keep sticking to the labor, the same labor practices. Wild. Like, yeah. Hey, everybody, capitalism's not, capitalism is not the friend here, you know? Can you just quickly say rusted diamonds make up this junkyard? Rusted diamonds make up this junkyard. Okay, so now we can say that Tom Waits has been on the podcast. Actually, yeah, we're going to put it on the website. <laughs> like we're Dan Nanian. Yeah. yeah. So unions would represent workers in these cases and, and would actually be able to bring these things to the table and prevent exploitation, labor exploitation. But we don't have fucking unions, so. Even now... With a fully functioning mainstream games press, these problems, better illuminated to the public, are presented with valor and, ah, it's just the way it is. For example, in August of 2017, ostensibly liberal outlet Polygon ran an excerpt from the book of a former AAA developer in a piece titled, quote, Why I Worship Crunch. It is bad. It is a bad piece. 
and the act the author actually on twitter was like hey uh i don't think that this is being used the right way crunch is bad and i wrote that book in a time in my life where i was still kind of like drawn to it and still am in a lot of ways uh crunch is bad I'll never understand workaholism because my entire being, every, like, my primal reptilian brain drive is to do as little work as possible at all times. (laughs) If I can be sitting, I will be sitting. Mm. I sit to pee. I don't care. (laughs) People are just like, I don't like to sit to pee. Are you, fuck, it's a chair that you can waste in. It's a chair you can waste in. Sit at all times. Good God. I'll sit in the fucking shower. I don't care. Uh, Fortunately, leftist criticism has been on the rise in recent years, both from within the game development community as well as from the press. Perhaps one of the most prominent examples is Dante Douglas, who often publishes really excellent leftist material on Paste or smaller platform folks like Jackson M and their cohorts on the Abnormal Mapping Podcast Network. This is the atmosphere that had built steam come this year's annual GDC. For those who don't know, GDC is the Game Developers Conference. It's an annual conference where some of the best minds of our industry go to swap ideas, lessons, and fun facts about game design. Uh, This is, by the way, in regards to GDC, this is, of course, allowing uh, that people can A, afford the exorbitant fees involved, and B, uh, manage to get into the country safely. Uh, I just thought that GDC could stand for Green Dick Cock for Luigi. Hey, we should say I can't. Hey, Nintendo, give us the year of Luigi number two. I bet you could do it. Also, Nintendo, goddammit, I want a thing in the new Smash Bros. where everyone can be pregnant. <laughs> Eight months pregnant fighters, please. Please. It's like, you know, when they can be all met, everyone's metal or everyone's invisible, everyone's pregnant. Everyone. Everyone's pregnant. Everybody. All talks are available to few ahead of time, of course, so that way developers can prioritize their schedule. One roundtable scheduled for March 21st was titled Union Now, Pros, Cons, and Consequences of Unionization for Game Devs Roundtable. Literally no consequences for unions unless you're a greedy person. Like, that's, like, those... The consequences are good. They're good consequences for people who actually do work corruption you're corrupted already by not doing unions i drew a lot of attention though it was not exactly positive hosted by the independent game developer association's executive editor jen mclean the talk promised to explore the pros heavy scare quotes here and cons of unionization from the talk's description on gdc's official website quote For as long as game developers have worked together, the debate about whether to unionize has been a contentious and passionate one. Discuss- I hate that. I hate how it frames it like it's a discussion between developers, because like, yeah, it is, but mostly the contention comes from- exists between developers and the people that they work under. Yeah. So already this is kind of disingenuous rhetoric. Continue quote. Discuss the history of unions around the world, victory conditions for successful unionization, the problems game devs experience that unions might, parenthetical, and might not solve. 
what unionization could mean for game developers, including outcomes both good and bad, and intended and unintended consequences of a push towards unionization. Again, like I said, this is highly suspect because unions are good. Actually, organized labor is super good. Yeah. So folks started to push her on it. In an interview with Jason Schreier, McLean herself admits that, quote, I'm wishy-washy because I don't think there's a clear and easy answer here. Wrong. There is. Unionized. Continue quote. It's really complicated because not only do you have different studio cultures, you have studios that are very upfront that you will crunch, uh, but you get to work on a multi-billion dollar title because of it, and you get a substantial bonus. Unless you get laid off, end quote. So, like, uh, also, nobody's nobody's calling for, like, a universal, a universal standard of, uh, like, from culture, from studio to studio of exactly how, this is exactly how a union will operate in every single studio. When, when she says things like that, that is a dis- disingenuous deflection of what unions actually do and are for. The interview consists of, like I said, deflection after deflection. There's literally a spot where he point blank goes like, yeah, but what about equal pay between men and women? And she does not address the gender wage camp at all in her answer. This is like weirdly bumming me out more than I thought it would. Oh, don't worry. I'm bringing it up. Oh, no, 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 no. Just be like, like, it's nothing to do with the story, but I'm just thinking just like the... It's one of those things where it's like the actual argument, the actual argument that we cannot have is, well, I just don't want to give my workers rights and, and like have, have my wages be garnished for that or something. Like the, the real, the actual debate is just like, well, I'm greedy and I don't want to yeah. do this. But they're putting it under the guise of just like, you know. This is actually bad for the workers. Yeah, which is, which is. It's like, like that fucking, when the LA Times unionized earlier this year, they kept posting emails from Tronk, uh, their parent company, uh, encouraging people against unionization, and it was full of just, like, tricksy rhetoric that was full of bullshit, like, the rhetoric is tricksy, Hobbitses. Yeah, like, literally, there was one that was like, did you know that normally you'd need, like, a majority to win, like, a workplace election, but with a union... All they would need is 50% plus one. And it's like, yeah, that's, what that's a, a fucking majority. That's a ma- you j- what are you, what? Yeah, there's Ooh. so much, there's so much anti-union rhetoric that is about like taking what is good about unions and then just like trying to phrase it slightly differently with a tone that like makes it seem bad, even though the bad thing is actually good. Like, hey, 50 plus one is 51. That's the majority. You idiot yeah and like like just i'm I'm not to dwell on this quote too much but like you like quote like you have studios that are up front that you will crunch but you'll get to work on a million dollar title because of it well what like what's like what what about i understand that That the title i understand that my bosses are spending a million dollars on it but i'm not seeing that million dollars exactly like you can oh my god and then of course she ends it being by like, and you'll get a bonus unless you get laid off, which is like, which is exactly the do? thing that That's the union the... is trying to prevent from happening. It's like it's, it's, it's like it's like. Listen, I know that there's a giant dragon attacking our village all the time, but burns his name are is Tom Lockney. But it's burns smog. But burns are good for your body. They're really good and they feel great. And I don't understand why we need to get rid of the dragon. You'll get burned by a dragon that's been hoarding so much gold, though. Yeah. 
anxiety over where this talk might lead and the status quo upholding ideologies that the IGDA, speaking through Jen McLean, might disseminate, found their way over to Twitter, where video game writer and experimental musician Liz Ryerson asked, quote, I wonder if we can organize some mini protest of this session. This was quickly picked up by the leftist game dev community, as, and soon she and others were organizing, designing flyers, buttons, etc. By March 19th, the Twitter account, along with an accompanying website, Game Workers Unite, at Game Workers on Twitter, was created. From their website, GameWorkersUnite.org. Quote, Why organize? Have you ever felt exploited by the game industry? Are you in a precarious situation? No job stability and in desperate need of support? Are you losing hope that you can work in a landscape you love at all? Welcome to Game Workers Unite. We are a currently forming anonymous and horizontal organization of people dedicated to advocating for workers' rights and crafting and the crafting of a unionized games industry. We represent all workers in game development and we seek to increase the visibility of our cause through community building, sharing resources, and direct action. We Tom, your throat is going to be lacerated. <laughs> we seek to bring hope to and empower those suffering in this industry. Well, fuck it. You know what? Fuck that. My throat is worth sacrificing to talk about how fucking good unions are. Flyers were printed, zines were constructed, and the literature was prepared. Then came the talk, which quite frankly did not go super well for McLean. Thanks to all the attention and direct act action by Ryerson and her cohorts, the room was overbooked and the crowd entered with many carrying the pro-union flyers that had been distributed earlier that day. Fuck yeah. This was also a roundtable talk where anyone in the audience was free to speak. Oh, this, shit. Yeah, yeah. This meant that McLean, though a moderator, lacked a level of control over the discussion. Uh, there's no footage of it, partly due to the roundtable nature, but also to protect the identities of those speaking with pro-union sentiments, which Shh. is all you need to know about uh, how labor organization is treated. Well, it, uh, rumor there was a rumor that Shigeru Miyamoto beheaded a Yoshi at the beginning of the meeting, and a lot of people found that very distasteful. Mostly because he had made an actual real-life Yoshi. He created the, it, like and, Jurassic Park. And he made it just so it could solely feel pain. He could be headed in front of everyone. Terrifying. And then Reggie ate a car. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fortunately, though, there was a lot of press there, and it came to, oh, for the most part, there was some. there were some outlets that I'm not going to name that uh, painted it as like, Oh, the crowd really ganged up on McLean. Was this a, a, a publication named after a many-sided shape? Maybe. Okay. Okay. Damn. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, most other outlets uh, actually portrayed what happened and what people were tweeting about. There were a lot of... That's the thing, too, is, like, the reason that we know some of that press coverage was bullshit is because there were a lot of live tweets from the room of people being like, Hey, uh, McLean, at best is playing devil's advocate against unionization and is at worst being full-blown antagonistic to the overwhelmingly pro-unionization crowd. It is reported that she would interrupt speakers throughout the round table and often respond to the statements with rude or condescending retorts. For example, in response to a statement about unions using their bargaining power to create a standard minimum pay for game devs. So so like so that way A good thing. Yeah, a good thing. So that way companies can't be like, well, we're not gonna hire you because this other person is willing to work for less than like minimum wage or whatever. Uh so so basically this this person was like, Hey, we can use unions to uh prevent an a how low can you go salary bidding war. McLean had this to say, quote What's the specific way that unions could allow more workers in the off in an office? Argue for more chairs? 
Does anyone else want to take a pass at the question? Did, like, that doesn't even have anything to do with the fucking idea that was posed. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> like, that's what that's what I hear every time she... It's a, like, I, I wish this conversation, roundtable discussion we were having would be over. Yeah. I should also note, the IGDA itself is not a union, merely an advocacy group, and apparently one that's uninterested in actually advocating for the workers it's supposed to advocate you, for. Look at you doing journalism. You're like deep throat, but your throat's been lacerated with a lawnmower. It's my, my deep throat is because my throat feels like it's in my fucking stomach right now. <laughs> it's deep in your own it's bowels. It's so deep in my body. By the end of the talk, the crowd had fully turned on McLean due to her dismissive and deflective remarks. There's one point Holly where... Holly <laughs> It was Bonnie, It was Bonnie Bedelia the whole time. Ugh. We, we just finished Parenthood a couple of days ago, and oh, man, man, they done did Bonnie Bedelia wrong. Bonnie Bedelia is so wrong, and she knew it. She was she was uninterested in that show at the end. Yeah, she's um, like the paycheck. Then, by the end of the week, in an interview with John Brendel for Zam, McLean came down in support of unionization. Kind of, is the question that was posed. So even though you have concerns about what forms unions will take, it sounds like you have, it sounds like you support the right of game workers to unionize. McLean's response, absolutely, completely. And to me, that fundamentally gets to the right of someone to improve their life. It gets to free speech. It gets to so many of the things that we should value in our life. I would recommend everybody read that full interview uh, because even though that quote is like, you should be able to unionize, it still exhibits a lot of the, the deflection and kind of like couching shit in like, well, you can unionize, but like, it, it could be bad, which like, it's not. Unionizing's not bad! Uh, although, it is a good example of how direct action fucking works, everybody. Like, hey, fucking mad shout-outs to Liz Ryerson and everybody involved right now uh, with Game Workers Unite. Like, fuck yeah. That's fucking awesome. They picked up on this immediately and were like, I think the fuck not. And it worked. Sure did. Because, yeah, because so many people went to that, and now there's all this, now there's actual talk about, like, hey, we should improve things. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting very heated, and Liam's so worried about my spittle. So he's yeah. hiding behind a mic, like a, what is it again, a damper? It's sound foam. Sound foam. I really can't get sick. It's, it's crunch time at work. <laughs> I'm not unioned. <laughs> At the risk, at the risk of coming off like McLean, I do think there there are a lot of internal criticisms the left, of which I consider myself a part, should engage with, so as to create unions that work intersectionally. There's still a huge problem with uh, bigotry and 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 folks in the left who insist. I mean, like fucking Jacobin constantly regurgitates this bullshit point that intersectionality is not actually a useful ideology and that it's just about that's being racist about class. That's yeah, yeah, racism. yeah 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 well guess what if you say that you're against intersectionality you are a racist yeah um and there are a lot sorry of, dude and there are still a lot of spaces on the left that that think that intersectionality is like a dead end uh as far as like action what ideology. are you it's, fucking talking about yeah yeah what I are know. you saying to me right now no like, yeah tom you're spouting nonsense at me you're you're making this up and you're just you're pulling my leg. No, I'm dead serious, and it fucking <gasps> sucks. It fucking this is so sucks. Dumb. 
Yeah, like if you're not an intersectional leftist, then like what the fuck are you even doing? <laughs> Upholding the status you? quo. Who are you, Chapo Dropout? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my story. <laughs> Unions are good. And if you think that they're bad, then I suggest that you read up on them. Hashtag Game Workers Unite on Twitter. Hashtag, hashtag everyone in this room has mental illness. I'm McLean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. We're gonna take a quick break so I can laugh at some of the dumbest things that Jacobin said that I've ever heard, because holy shit, I can't get over that. Uh, we're gonna hear about something else on the network, and then um, I'm gonna talk about unions. Back in history class, did you ever take a step back from that textbook you were reading and just think to yourself, man, these people are very dumb. Hi, my name is Eric McAdams and I have a podcast for you. It's called Big Time Whoopsies, and every other Wednesday on the Major Cast Network, I tell a guest, and you the listener, a story from history involving massive incompetence. Big Time Whoopsies, people are dumb, and history can prove it. We're back, and we're going to go in a time machine. We're going to go back to 1931, Chicago, Illinois. This story got away from me. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. The mafia outfit in Chicago had always had its eyes set on Hollywood. Just before Al Capone went to jail forever and died in jail, he called a general meeting of all of his guys and told them that he intended to extend his power westward, and he ordered Frank Needy, one of Capone's top henchmen who was nicknamed The Enforcer, to draw up a plan to look into taking over Chicago's enormous entertainment industry. He thought if they could get into that, that was how they get their foot in the door. But then the taxmen came around and slammed away Capone, but Frank Needy never forgot that plan to go west. He needed to do it. Well, thirty in 33... But Needy looked at Hollywood with its stars and producers, who he knew had tons of skeletons in their closets, and he saw nothing but dollar signs. And he was right. L.A. was one of the most corrupted cities ever. Uh, disputes were settled in gunshots. Gangsters just moved into town and bribed politicians. Elections were rigged by competing gangs. Uh, the district attorney at the time, Baron Fritz, was already on his way to becoming one of the country's most corrupt lawmen. And the police chief, Jim Davis, was oh, quote, oh, 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 no, ooh, you're thinking of ooh? Garfield, yeah, no, 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 they're the same person. You're thinking of so the police chief at the time, Jim Davis, was quote, a loudmouth clown who carried two six gun revolvers and was so corrupt that a detective's badge could be purchased for five dollars. A police chief, I'm I'm gobsmacked, Liam. The mayor, Frank Shaw, admitted to newspapers that he rigged elections oh my God. and placed his brother in charge of a spy squad within the police department <sighs> that kept track of and intimidated his enemies. Compared to L.A., Frank Needy Chicago was a bastion of order, but Hollywood was something else. And the Depression had hit Hollywood hard. Profits were super off, which was causing weird ripple effects amongst the studios. The danger with low profits is at the time, uh, the motion picture business was about 15 years old. Um, Other way more established businesses were able to withdraw lots of cash that they had from sustaining business over the years. But Hollywood studios were just like, we just started like a second ago. At the time, 
the industry was on its way up just through popularity. Every day, tens of millions of dollars were poured into just movie theaters because people would still go. It cost a nickel to go to a theater for like all day. So, so Frank Needy and the mob were just like, we want some of that money. And they knew how to get through to them. And it was with control of national entertainment unions, which is just the way that Capone had planned in the first place. So after Capone's arrested, Frank Needy, the enforcer, is put in charge of the entire Chicago outfit. And he's thinking about going westward. So one night at Club 100, which was a mafia uh, casino, two of Needy's henchmen named Nick Cercella and Frankie Rio, who were also former Capone bodyguards, uh, it was also uh, Cercella's casino, they're watching these two low-level mob guys they know, Willie Beoff and George Brown, just lose thousands after thousands of dollars at roulette with nothing but a care in the world. And they're thinking to themselves, like, how do these two fucking nobodies have this much money to lose at our casino? So they go back to Needy and they're like, hey, we saw these two guys. And uh, Needy demanded that they bring these two to his house. So Beoff and Brown, dressed in their best suits, are waiting in the drawing room of Needy's 20-room mansion. Uh, Brown was terrified. That's, that's, that's too many rooms. That's a lot of rooms. Brown was terrified. He was certain that Needy was going to kill them and that they were going to be, like, you know, put in a vat of toxic waste yeah. never seen again. Says Cinderblock in the, on the feet, throw him in the, in the river. Just leave him with the fishes. Fish nap. But Beoff was the smarter of the two, and he saw this as an opportunity. Uh, if they had crossed, he, he figured if they had crossed Needy in some way, they would have already been dead. After half an hour, a young, smartly dressed thug they didn't recognize came out and led them into a large, formal living room where uh, Phil D'Andrea, former Capone bodyguard, Paul the Waiter Rica, Charles Cherry Nose Gio, a top executive in the outfit, and Louis Little New York Capania were waiting. Hey Liam, what's yeah? what's our mob nicknames? I think you're uh, Tom Horndog Lockney. <laughs> Horndog or the Big Sick. Or the Big Sick. I'm the Big Currently Sick. Currently, you're the Big Sick. For sure. And I'm Liam, always about 12 minutes late, senior. <laughs> <laughs> so Frank Needy himself sat at the desk chair glaring at Brown and Beoff. Where'd you get the money, he snapped. And don't you fucking lie to me. George Brown was too terrified to speak, so Beoff did all the talking. So basically, when the National Depression knocked the bottom out of Chicago's once enormous prostitution racket, Beoff, who was a pimp at that time, started to shake down Fulton Street shopkeepers, restricting himself oh, he, where he would work all of the Jewish stores and George Brown would work all the Gentile stores, um, since Beoff was Jewish and knew all of the stores and was able to extort them. Uh, oh, I should say, Willie Beoff is kind of a prick. Okay, yeah, yeah. Everyone in this story is kind of a prick. Brown and Beoff kept running into each other because they would go collect their pay on the same day. And they started to just start a partnership that they dubbed B&B for Brown and Beoff. Uh, so they decided to expand their operations and uh, get control of the stagehands and get control of the stagehands union by increasing dues to $5 and then pocketing the increase for themselves. A crime. Since that plan worked out so easily over dinner one night, they came up with another plan to raise more money by threatening the theaters with a strike. Beoff came up with an even better idea. Instead of collecting money, 
once from the theater owners, they would sell them a no-strike guarantee which they would collect monthly. Uh, they approached Barney Balaban, owner of Chicago's largest and most successful movie house chain, Balaban and Katz Theaters. Sam Katz, who co-owned it with Balaban, uh, it should be noted Sam Katz would go on to own MGN Studios, and Balaban would one day run Paramount. I feel like we should say, by the way, oh, oh well, that's an interesting point, because it shows how little, how little space there is between uh, high-level capitalists and fucking organized criminals. Mm -hmm. And I, we should also say that this is the one way that unions could be bad is if they're run by literal fucking crime lords. Yes. So here's it's the only way. It's the only way. So we're going back in time again. Oh, Christ. We're in a story within a story within a story. Oh, my goodness. This is like the Benjamin Button of stories. That doesn't make any sense. Not even a little bit. Guys, Loud I'm, Atlas. I'm so sick. All right. So uh, Balaban and Katz were really fucking smart, and they begun operating Nickelodeon's old theaters uh, as teenagers, and they were among the very first to produce silent films. Uh, Balaban, he was a tough, two-fisted, self-made man, and when Bioff and Brown showed up with their extorts and threats, he immediately and personally threw them out of their building. <laughs> Bioff and Brown talked about it and decided that they entered into the shakedown the wrong way because they were unsure of themselves and nervous, and it showed. <laughs> because Balaban <laughs> like was just like, fucking bitch. Yeah, get the fuck out of my store. <laughs> a few days later, they went back, more self-assured, and promised Balaban that if they didn't get their way, there would be a strike. It would last for months, unless Balaban forked over 20000 to B&B &B Enterprises. To soften the blow, Bioff told Balaban that the money would go directly to unemployed union members for emergency help. He was lying. They intended, in fact, and they did, steal every penny of the money. But Bioff was smart enough to know that if Balaban gave the 20000 to a charitable cause, like a soup kitchen or something, the company could write the money off of their corporate tax bill and win public admiration at the same time. Balaban was also a pretty shrewd dealer in a high-level capitalist. He quickly figured out that neither Bioff nor Brown would keep any written documents of the transaction since they intended to steal the money anyways. So they decided to say so they would fork over 20000 to Bioff and Brown's soup kitchen, but they would tell the government that they had donated 100000 and then pocket an additional 80000 for themselves. Everyone in the story is bad and a criminal. Yeah, this is horrible. We're not even at the main part. This oh. is just this is just like everyone's fucking origin story. Oh god. And the beauty of it was Bioff and Brown had to swear that they would be given the amount that they gave. Or sorry, uh, they would swear that they would give him the amount that Balaban claimed. They had to. There was no other choice. <laughs> uh, Balaban's lawyer Leo Spitz, when he handed the money over, reached into the suitcase in front of Brown and Bioff, pulled out a thousand dollars and stuffed it in his own pocket for carrying charges, he oh roughly God. said. Jesus Christ. Needy understood everything, even before Bioff had finished talking. He also saw the big picture at once. There were hundreds of movie theaters in pre-television Chicago, thousands in Illinois, and tens of thousands across the U.S. The potential was endless. He was going to cut the outfit in B&B Steel for 50%, but he would later increase that to 75 and eventually 90 From that amount, 10% of the gross went into the mob's general treasury, and the rest was divided up among those who had invested in the scheme. Uh, Brown and Bioff were to report to Cercella if anything was wrong, the stagehands union would now be under Needy's control. Listen to how powerful the idea of corrupting a Hollywood union was. So Frank Needy met with his counsel at, the, at an Italian restaurant inside Chicago's Loop, where they would go over plans every once in a while. He told them that he and Lucky Luciano, who was in charge of the New York outfit, uh -huh. were merging their mafias together. Okay. 
to go at Hollywood. That's how much they wanted to cook. They, the Chicago mob and the New York mob buried their hatchets so that they could work together to take over the really weak Hollywood labor unions that were little babies at this time. The entertainment industry was so big that they couldn't just cover it from Chicago. They needed New York. So Needy and Lucky decided they would start with Balaban, demand for a 20% increase for for the projectionists, and when they refused, New York and Chicago would arrange uh, theater strikes all over the East Coast, New York's influence, and the Midwest, Chicago's influence. So think about it. The country at this point is pretty much like East Coast, Midwest, West Coast. The West Coast is super duper young as far as any industries or money. Midwest and East Coast are old money. Old, old money. So they can basically just get like the the really young Hollywood labor force to be like, we can arrange a strike on two-thirds of the country. Oh my god. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if, if that happened, but like without criminal influence? God, the world would change. George Brown would be sent in as a peacemaker and stabilizer to end uh, the strike through peaceful negotiations, while at the same time getting the protectionists a small raise. With that done, the mob would run him for the stagehand union presidency in the next election. So the idea was, we have this strike, we get one of our guys to come in, save it, get the projectionists a raise, and then he's going to run for the president of that union, so the union is now not just in our pocket, but literally part of the fabric that makes up the pants. Brown won the 34 election and was elected national president of the IATSC, the union which affectionately controlled the entertainment business at the time. And Willie Beoff was appointed Brown's special representative at a salary of 22000 in 1934. Wow, that's a lot of fucking money. Even, you know what? I would, I would, I would enjoy 22000 For some people, that's like a year of work. Yeah. And then he just got it because he was like, Yo, it's rigged an election. It's fucking more than I make. The Chicago mob's takeover of a giant American industry had officially begun. Frank Needy told Bioff and Brown that they had to move out west. They needed uh, eyes closer to the studios. The pair did as they would order, while Brown spent most of his time locked behind his office doors drinking beer nervously. <laughs> Willie Bioff made himself busy. Wow, I can fucking hardcore relate to that. In less than three months, he took 250000 in cash from the movie moguls at Warner, 20th Century Fox, Paramount. Everybody paid, all of it in cash, wrapped in brown paper bundles. Needy, who always expected the worst in everything, was amazed to find out that he didn't need a ramrod to knock down Hollywood's golden gates. He just knocked gently, and they were more than happy to bend over and give him loads and loads of money. The reason for that was that Hollywood, as Needy would quickly learn, was all about money. Capitalism. Ah, yes. It's an industry. It sure is. Although it later became known as the Beoff and Brown extortion scandal, it wasn't really extortion, like not in the classic sense, because the studio heads, by paying off Beoff and Needy's not, uh, by paying off Beoff and Needy so that they wouldn't raise prices, were actually saving money, like up to millions of dollars of what they would have had to pay in legitimate union wage increases. Ah, and here and herein lies why this is not actually representative of unions and what they do. Yep. Furthermore, the scandal benefited the studios in other ways because the mob, for everything that was evil about it, usually kept its word once it was paid, and the mob had agreed not to raise labor prices because they controlled the labor unions. Yeah. And see, 
oh, what if the mafia like corrupted the labor unions? Well, if they did that, it would, it would be... benefit you, person, saying that. So your argument is, well, I'm evil. Yeah, well, yeah. It, Congratulations. If, if, if a if a union if a labor union is not about the actual labor, then it's not doing what unions are designed to do. That promise assured the studios that the productions would finish without stoppage or a problem for IATSC's uh, twelve thousand members. And as a result of a toothless union, the studios fired workers at will and pushed others to work overtime without compensation. As a result, films were made for less money because not as many people were needed or being paid fairly. Cool. Cool and good. Fucking capitalism rocks. Uh, Hollywood ended up saving $15 million in what they should have paid out in wage increases. Jesus. Hollywood would rather work with the mafia than pay workers a fair wage. Fight. Ah! Unions was a bad idea for a Media Majors episode because we were both pissed. We are furious! Joseph Michael Schnenk. My throat is in agony right now, but I can't stop trying to shout. So Joseph Michael Schenk was a Russian-born American film studio executive. He was a big big film producer in New York during the silent era and moved out west uh, where the future of the film industry seemed to lie. Within a few years, Schneck was made the second president of United Artists, and in 33, he partnered with Daryl F. Zanuck to create 20th Century Pictures that merged with Fox Film Corporation in 1935. He was the chairman of 20, the first chairman of 20th Century Fox, Jesus. and was one of the most powerful and influential people in the film business. Joe got involved with, in fact, he almost helped design the mob shakedown of the Hollywood studios in April of 1936. Unlike the gangsters who lived from day to day on their incomes, the studio heads relied on budgets. He was about to pay off Beoff during Beoff's monthly visits, but those were getting expensive, so he decided that Beoff could probably be bribed. Uh, he told Beoff that the, the DuPont representatives in California wanted to increase his raw film business with MGM and other studios, and they were willing to pay Beoff a 7% commission to act as the designated agent between DuPont Chemical and Hollywood Studios. So basically, he was like, hey, if you sit in on this meeting, you get a commission and you don't come around every month anymore. Mm. Capiche? Bialk agreed to the deal under the conditions that his income never fell under 50000 a year and that Schnenk was not to mention the commission to the, of the deal to anybody, including Needy. Schenk called the other studio heads, explained the situation, and they all agreed and reluctantly switched their business from Eastman Kodak Raw Film to DuPont Chemical. Again, this is this the reason unions are, are don't work is because of the people who don't want unions to work. Yeah. I mean that's the thing, is like the mob is not doing this in support of actual workers' rights. Uh, workers' rights were just like a stepping stool to institutional power that they could then use to acquire capital. And and therefore like w- which is counter to the point of unions, which is to ensure that people are treated fairly and well. Bioff received a commission of $159,025, which was an enormous amount that's of money for 1936. So much fucking, that's, enor- that's an enormous amount of money right now. That's over 500000 today. Jesus Christ. Flush with more cash than possible, Willie Bioff went Hollywood. He wore expensive clothes, carried three diamond-studded solid gold union business cards in his wallet like an asshole. Are you fucking kidding me? No. 
using most using mostly union funds and by applying yet another special collection on the studios, Bioff was able to raise funds to buy a ranch where uh, he grew uh, alfalfa and uh, flowers. Oh, uh, oh, uh, no, no. And relaxed no, no, in his no, mahogany-paneled no, mansion. I need, you, I need you to stop. I need you to stop now. Where although he could barely no. read, Bioff had a pine knot no. library filled with the world's no. greatest books and very no. expensive volumes. No. 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 He bought a Louis Fifteenth bedroom in a rare Chinese vase and fancied himself a connoisseur of rare vases and installed a kidney-shaped swimming pool built in the backyard for his seven kids. So Montgomery Cliff, the Screen Actors Guild president, noticed all of this finance stuff going on and thought, uh... Something might be up here! I think that Shank is ensuring a payoff for buy-off secrecy. Then one of Cliff's informants provided him with a copy of the check that Shank had made out to be off for 100000 Cliff reported the deal to the IRS immediately, and eventually Joe was secretly indicted for tax evasion. When que- questioned about the check he had written to Bioff, uh, Joe said it was a loan. Later on, he made the mistake of testifying to that under oath. When the government was able to prove that Joe paid Bioff the money as a means to avoid taxes, he was indicted on several counts of tax evasion. Good. Joe, always the businessman, decided to cooperate with the government in exchange for his a light sentence. The government agreed, and Joe sat before the grand jury and outlined the entire scam. The grand jury eventually found Joe guilty of tax evasion, and he was sentenced to five years at a federal prison. But Joe Shank wasn't just anybody. He wasn't going to serve out his jail term, and he, the whole world knew it. He served just under a year and was granted a presidential uh, pardon by Harry S. Truman, and then went to running his studios as though nothing had happened. Based on his testimony... Man, you know what? There's a fucking... You, you read about this. The Texas woman right now who was on probation and voted and is getting five fucking years in prison. One, she didn't know. And two, that's, an, that's a ridiculous amount of time. She's going to serve the full five. This fucking dude ran a scam, fucking tooled a union to actually just be a, 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 a capitalist device and a shakedown, a motherfucking shakedown, and he gets to chill out in prison for a year and then go back like nothing fucking happened. There is no consequence. There are no consequences for white men. So then Joe and Harry Warner, head of Warner Pictures, basically ratted on everybody. They told the grand jury about how it was all the New York Mafia and the Chicago Mafia. And on May 23rd, 1941, Brown, Bioff, Paul Rica, Frank Needy, Nick Cercella, Charlie Gio, and Phil D'Andrea were all indicted for extortion and tax evasion. Good. Oh my god, I'm fucking... Liam, I am irate right now. Yeah, well, Willie Bioff had no intention of doing any jail time. He called U.S. Attorney Boris Kostelenitz from a jailhouse visitor's phone and opened the conversation by saying, This is Bioff. Okay, Boris, what do you want to know? And Bioff laid out the entire scheme for him. Times, dates, places, names, amounts. In exchange for his testimony, the government agreed to let Bioff keep the money he had stolen over the past decade, and he would walk away from any charges against him. After three weeks, Bioff finished giving his testimony to the grand jury, and when he finished talking, indictments were handed down for Roselli, Needy, Rika, Campania, Gio, D'Andrea, uh, and a couple of other people that we haven't met. There was a trial, but none of the outfit members took the stand in their own defense. The case against them was that overwhelming. On, 19, on December 30th, 1943, the verdict against them was returned. They were each found guilty and sentenced an average of 10 years in federal prison plus a $10,000 fine, and were liable for the back taxes owed. It was as the Chicago Herald American wrote, 
the total demolition of the Chicago syndicate. Frank Navy never went to trial on the Beoff charges because a day before he was indicted, he took a .45 and killed himself. Oh, jeez. Just as he always promised he would if he had ever faced another long prison sentence. Yikes. Yeah. The rest of the gangsters avoided jail time with a combination of paying off criminal lawyers who were in bed with the Attorney General and President Truman. The public was pissed, and the House Expeditures... Sorry. And the House Expenditures Committee revoked the pair... The House Expenditures Committee revoked the parole due to the suspicious circumstance. They got parole before Chicago could even file the paperwork against it. Jesus Christ. And the two questionable lawyers were named in the revoke. But it doesn't matter because money talks, and one of the members of the mob simply just kept paying off the right people so no important mob member went to jail. Of course, of course, of course, of course. Why should there be any consequences for anything? In its final report, the Congressional Committee charged to look into the entire mess wrote, the syndicate has given the most striking demonstration of political clout in the history of the Republic. So following Joe's release, he returned to 20th Century Fox, where he became infatuated with the unknown Marilyn Monroe and played a key role in launching her career. He was one of the founders of the Academy of Motion Pictures of Arts and Sciences, and in 52, he was given a special Academy Award in his recognition of his contribution to the development of the film industry. He is a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 6757 Hollywood Boulevard, and it would be a shame if anything were to happen to it. Tear, tear it all down. Tear it all down. Tear down the systems. Beoff and Brown were given reduced sentences. Upon his relief, Beoff moved to Arizona and assumed a new, ident- and assumed a new identity, William Nelson. <laughs> And even reported a developed, or even reportedly developed a friendship with then Senator Barry Goldwater, even going into business with the, the senator's nephew Bobby. Beoff, however, soon began working for Riviera Casino manager Gus Greenbaum at the Chicago outfit-owned Las Vegas Casino. Beoff was assassinated on November fourth, nineteen fifty-five, through a bombing described as follows: Beoff walked out of his home and slid behind the wheel of his truck. A moment later, an explosion rocked the neighborhood. Parts of Beoff and his truck were strewn all over the driveway. Yuck. Police found the remains of a dynamite bomb wired to the starter. The killers were never found. And that's the story about one of the biggest shakedowns in mob uh, in mob history in an industry that I've decided I wanted to work with, I guess. <sighs> wow. So, uh, sometimes on this show, really, we really scrape from the dregs, don't we? It would appear so. I mean, at least mine ended on a hopeful note. Hey. Oh, God, no. Mine sure as hell didn't. Everyone who was indicted got perfectly fine. One of the biggest people who was a part of it has a walk, has a walk of fame. Someone who did, like, the least, dirty, the, the least dirty thing and just was an asshole got assassinated in a car bombing. Yeah. So we like to balance that out with, like, fun... Nice things on on this program in a segment we like to call the self care corner. We're gonna talk about some nice that happened in our days and our weeks and our lives. Why you know what? I should be talking. We're gonna Well it's too fucking late, Liam. It really it. is. Alright, Tom, how about you go and then I'll do the rest of the podcast. You uh, can leave. My self care corner is that in about three minutes I'm gonna get to stop talking. Great. My self care corner is uh in about an hour. I am going to a legion themed experience thing for the upcoming second season of legion and i'm very excited and it's gonna be great hey um so we can finally make the announcement but in the next couple of weeks the double x files podcast is gonna be joining the major cast network this is a huge great thing even tom's computer is chirping my computer is so thrilled um so why don't you go check them out 
and follow their Twitters and support them on Patreon. Oh, uh, yes, that's at Double X Files on Twitter. Uh, you can find them on Facebook. Uh, the, you can also find their uh, them on their website. Also, you can search for the Double X Files podcast. And soon they're going to be part on the network. We're just doing some reconfiguring and just making sure the site is going to yeah, be yeah. nice and pretty. Uh, that's I obviously think- the... I think that they're fucking hilarious. Me too. And they're so good, and we are extremely Such lucky to have Such good, wonderful them. folks. Yes. We're very, very happy. And, uh, yeah, let's oh, yeah. give them Wait, a big major cast what call. exactly they do. It's, a, oh, yeah. it's like an X-Files recap podcast. Um, but Allison and Courtney are kind of, they're two intersectional feminists, and so that's where a lot of their criticism comes from. Because the X-Files is a bad a bad oh, show man, made by a bunch guys. of bad little boys. Wow, it really is. That show has a lot of very deep-seated problems. So let's give them a big major cast network welcome. Yeah. Uh, that's the big announcement we've been talking about on all the shows. Yeah. Uh, we're in the middle of... Uh, a, couple um, other, a couple other projects happening that's going to come down probably late April, early May. Yeah, and we're trying to... We're gonna The site's going to be changed and some new things are going to happen, so... Yeah. Thank you for bearing with us yes. with all this. We really appreciate it. Uh, we still haven't gotten any submissions of what Sonic's feet look like. Um, I get it, but why don't you do me a solid? Maybe we'll figure out a fun way for you to be rewarded. Yeah, if you're a new listener, you can email us at mediumagespodcast at gmail.com. Hey, send in yourself a quarter if you'd like. We'll yeah. read it aloud on the air. Send in story ideas if you have them Ooh. that you think would work with our our stuff. Yeah. Uh, we were we love submissions, so please just get in contact with us. We have Twitters you can follow. The show has a Twitter. The show's on Facebook. There are like a thousand oh, no, different no, no, ways. No, 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 no. The show's not on Facebook anymore. The network's on Facebook. The network's on Facebook. I don't think it's on Facebook anymore because I deleted my Facebook account and that page. I also my deleted my Facebook account. Yeah. So get in touch with us on Twitter. Twitter. Twitter is where to reach us, at MediaMagesCast. Uh, I'm at Thomas Lockney, L-O-U-G-H-N-E-Y. I'm at Call Your Dad, because I like silly things. Um, and as always, we'll be there for you. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.